Thank you. Thank you, Carrie. Thank you for worshiping with us this morning, guys. Welcome. Welcome to Reach Church. My name is Andrew, and I am the senior pastor here. And if I haven't met you before, I personally want to welcome you all, whether you're joining us online today or you're in person. And especially if this is your first time, we're so glad that you've made this a part of your weekend. Go ahead and get your Bible out. And we're going to be in Galatians chapter 5. We're going to start off in verse 16, and we're going to work our way through Uh, verse 23 together today. If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to raise your hand and let us know that you'd like one. We'll bring a Bible to you and get you guys going there. If you're looking for Galatians, you're going to find it most readily available at the beginning of your Bible in the table of contents. It's going to give you a collection of Old Testament books and New Testament books. You're going to want to be in the New Testament, Galatians chapter 5. We're in a study. We're continuing in a study of what's known as the fruit of the Spirit. Nine characteristics of one fruit. These are like mitochondria, their DNA to one whole of something. And we're going to look at that together today. So Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 16, says, So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us the desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you're not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you're directed by the Spirit, you're not under obligation to the law of Moses. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. And since we're living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Father, thank you for this privilege that we have to study your word collectively together today. Thank you for this letter that was written that is active to this day and alive and as it is read and as it goes out that the guarantee is that it doesn't return void. The promise is that it changes our lives, that it informs our heads and transforms our hearts. God, I pray that today as we learn about faithfulness, what faithfulness is, how we can experience faithfulness, and how we can live it out in our lives, that you would do a new work in us. Father, I pray that today you would write a new song in our hearts, and that you would go before us and prepare us for what you have in store for us. Now, may the words of my mouth and meditations of our hearts be received as a gift, equally holy and pleasing to you alone our rock and redeemer. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Hey, quick question. How many of you would consider yourselves to be faithful Nebraska football fans? Raise your hand unapologetically. Are you a faithful Nebraska football fan? That is a lot less than what I thought. That is underwhelming. Wow. Maybe you didn't hear the question. So I'm going to give you a do-over. How many of you by a quick show of hands, would say that you are a faithful Nebraska Cornhusker football fan. 
How many of you are more of a Nebraska volleyball fans right now? Okay, wow, wow, that's amazing. I had a conversation with a friend of mine yesterday over lunch and we were watching multiple football games in this restaurant that we were at. The Nebraska, came, uh, the Nebraska game came on against Northwestern and we started talking about what it means to be a faithful Nebraska fan. And he said something that I hadn't thought about. He said that there is an entire generation removed of success as a football team. Now, this are, these are his words. He's from the area, not me. And so he said it is really hard for his son, who is a seventh grader, to have a faithful appreciation of the Nebraska Cornhuskers because they're really not that good. He said it's easy to follow teams like Michigan right now or Ohio State right now or Oregon right now. <laughs> Winning teams, successful teams, teams that set a precedent of year after year doing really good things. He said that it's really kind of sad because our generation, I'm 45, so I'd say my generation because I experienced it from a distance in real time in the 90s. I was alive and in high school when Nebraska was winning national championship after national championship. It wasn't a matter of if they were gonna go to the national, champion, uh, national championship game, it was who they were gonna beat when they played them. That, that day is long gone. It's, it's as old as, well, I am, it's gone. <laughs> now I'm not saying that those days aren't ahead of us, but that light is dim at the end of that tunnel right now. So as we were talking, he said, it's really interesting to, to think about the faithful fans of Nebraska and this number of the, the most consecutive sellout games and Memorial Stadium and all this stuff. And I got to thinking about it. What makes someone a faithful football fan? There are adjectives that came to my mind, loyal, right, committed, dedicated. And those adjectives are appropriate because at its core, I looked it up in Merriam-Webster's dictionary. That's literally what it means. To be faithful is to be steadfast or to have an allegiance. It's a firm adherence to someone or to something. As I was thinking about today and this message that I get to share with us, we're looking at faithfulness. We've looked at the fruit of the Spirit so far in seven different manners, including today. That the Holy Spirit gives us this kind of fruit, love, Joy, peace, patience, kindness. Last week we looked at goodness, and today we're going to look at faithfulness. Following today's message, we have two more weeks where we're going to look at gentleness and we're going to round it out with self-control. The thing about Merriam-Webster's definition and our understanding of faithfulness is it's overwhelmingly underwhelming when it comes to our biblical standard or a biblical understanding of what faithfulness as a follower of Jesus is. The first thing that I want us to understand is that faithfulness, as we're gonna to come to learn about it here in a moment, isn't something that we do. I'm not a devoted uh, fan of Nebraska or Oregon in the same way that I'm a devoted follower of Jesus. I choose to support the Oregon Ducks or the Nebraska Cornhuskers or the Iowa Hawkeyes or the Iowa State Cyclones or whoever it is we follow. We choose to buy the apparel, watch the games, support the teams and learn about the history and the heritage. And we choose to be devoted or committed or loyal to that brand or to that team. Unless you're a Fairweather fan, 
And then it changes all the time. But when it comes to faithfulness as a fruit of the Spirit in our lives, it's not something that we can decide. It's a gift. But I say the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. There's something that's amazing about understanding that the responsibility where the gift of faithfulness lies in our lives isn't something that we can do, but it's a part of what we experience and we get to express as a byproduct of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. Now, if you're here this morning and you have committed your life to Christ, you have told him you have, that he is not only Savior of your life, you've believed in your heart and you've confessed with your mouth, but you have surrendered your life and you have made him Lord over your life, Scripture promises, Scripture teaches that you have what's known as the indwelling or the inner filling of the third person of the Trinity, which is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is alive in us. The Holy Spirit is at work in us. The role and responsibility in part of the Holy Spirit is to convict us and to comfort us, to inform us, to guide us, but also to give us gifts and to mature us in our faith, to develop us, to make us more like Christ in his image and likeness. So the Holy Spirit gives these gifts, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. For us to understand then that faithfulness, as we understand it, as a, as, a, as, a, as a byproduct of the definition that we've grown up with, loyalty, commitment, and dedication, I think we need to understand the Greek root word for faithfulness. It's the word pistis. If we were to use the English alphabet, it would be spelled P-I-S-T-I-S, just as a way for us to understand how it's enunciated. It's pistis. Pistis, in the original language, it literally means belief, trust, confidence. It's a fidelity and a faithfulness. That's where the word comes from, faithfulness. It's a divine persuasion given by God. I want to give us one working definition in two parts, okay? One working definition in two parts. The first is this, that faithfulness, according to Scripture, is absolute assurance and devoted trust of God. His word, his will, and his way. Let me read that again. It's absolute assurance. It's total confidence and devoted trust of God. It's devoted trust of his word. It's a devoted trust of his will. And it's a devoted trust of his way. The second part of our working definition is that faithfulness is a confidence in Christ. It's placing a confidence in Christ his love, his sovereignty, his abilities, his provision, and his saving grace. The word faithfulness or faith, pistis, is used some 243 times in the New Testament alone. 243 times in multiple books throughout the New Testament. It's used to help us understand and as an exhibition of what this this spirit-filled life looks like in real time. There's a biblical definition that we're given as well. And today, I want to read that from the King James Version. We typically and traditionally read out of the New Living Translation, not because it's a superior translation, but because it's a really accurate and good translation that's easily understandable and replicatable in our lives. 
But there are times where different translations don't really encompass the whole or the totality of something. And so there's a more literal definition, whether it's from the English Standard Version or the New American Standard Bible, or in this case, I'm choosing to use the King James Version today. I want us to read from Hebrews 11, chapter 1, from the King James Version. Now, for your convenience, it's going to come up on the screens. You can choose to read it in your New Living Translation in front of you, which is absolutely acceptable. It breaks it down in more of a common vernacular. But I want to read to us Hebrews 11.1 1 as a biblical understanding for faithfulness. Hebrews 11.1 1 in the King James Version. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Let me read that again, and we're going to look at what faith is. It's actually two parts. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The New English Version, or yeah, the New International Version would say that faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we don't see. So faithfulness, or faith, pistis, is really two parts. The first is that it is the substance. So we learn that faith is, or faithfulness, is substantive. That it has substance, that it's real rather than imagined. It's not just some ethereal concept that we can talk about philosophically and dream about and wonder about or conjure up some ideology of what it is. It's substantive. Faith is the substance. As substantive, that it's very real. Being substantive means that it's a tangible experience. We use the senses that God has given us to experience faithfulness, touch, taste, sight, smell, sound. That faithfulness at its core impacts the human heart and the human life. Faithfulness, pistis, at its core will have an intrinsic impact on very real things to us. The sensories, touch, taste, sight, smell, and sound. It's not ethereal. It's not some abstract idea that we longingly look for and understand. It's something that we can experience in real time. It's substance. If we look at our lives and we were to begin to try to remember spaces, seasons of time where faith was very real to us, we should be able to associate moments and experiences that we heard or saw or felt or experienced and expressed faithfulness. That's why I said that I think our understanding of biblical faithfulness is overwhelmingly underwhelming. We use faith or faithfulness in the terms of trust or loyalty or commitment, devotion, and those aren't bad. They're just really short-sighted and fall short of what it truly is. Faith isn't just a dedication. It's an experience, something that we have as a follower of Jesus. The second thing, faith is substance of things hoped for. The second thing is it says that faith is the evidence of things not seen. Evidence. It means that it's obvious in our lives. I was talking to a friend of mine this morning about the importance of church. The significance of church. And I want you to hear me say this. And this isn't unique to me. I heard it many years ago from another pastor. But I wholeheartedly believe that I understand it. And I've adopted this, what I believe to be uh, an understanding 
in my life. I believe that the hope of the world is the local church. Yes, it is Jesus. There is no substitution for Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But I believe that Jesus expressed and experienced through the local church, through you and me, the ecclesia, the gathering, is the hope of the world. And I think that people, when they look at hope, they, they think about hope as something that they desire to have but haven't attained. We as followers of Jesus, we are living out hope because of Jesus at work in us, because of his finished work on the cross, his death, his resurrection, and the promise of his second coming, we have hope and will have hope. It's not something we, we, we hope is in the future. It's something we're experiencing now. And so as I think about this evidence, the question is, is there evidence in our lives of faithfulness? Has the Holy Spirit made it so abundantly obvious in your life and through your life that, that, that you have this absolute assurance and devoted trust of God, his word, his will, and his way? Has the Holy Spirit filled you with the hope that is a confidence in Christ, his love, his sovereignty, his abilities, his provision, and his saving grace? It's a proof or an evidence that by which a thing is tested, proved, or trusted. It's what we know as putting our faith to the test. I want to share with us today a parallel passage of Scripture. It's a story. It's in the New Testament Gospel of Mark. Would you turn there? Mark chapter 4, or excuse me, Mark chapter 5. We're going to be in Mark chapter 25. In your Bible from Galatians, it's going to be back to your left. It's the second book of the New Testament, Matthew and then Mark. Mark chapter 5. And we're going to read together, beginning in verse 24, we're going to read through verse 34. As you're turning there to Mark chapter 5, 24, I want to give you a little bit of culture. I want us to understand a little bit of the context of what's happening here. Jesus is well established and on his way in ministry. People are interested in Jesus. They're confused by Jesus. They are wanting to pursue Jesus. Jesus and his disciples... They get in a boat, and if I were to show a map of kind of ancient Israel, there would be three main bodies of water, really four if I included the Mediterranean Sea or the Great Sea, but three main bodies of water. That would be at the very top, the Sea of Galilee. The Jordan River would run from the Sea of Galilee and connect to the Dead Sea at the bottom. Up in the northern part of Israel, the Sea of Galilee, Jesus is going to go from the bottom west side of the Sea of Galilee into a region known as the Gerasenes, which is going to be to the bottom east of the Sea of Galilee. And as Jesus and his disciples step out of the boat, they are met almost immediately by a man that is described as being from the graves. This is a man who is possessed by demons, quite literally thousands of demons. This man comes naked, and bleeding, and cut, and broken, and screeching, and he calls out, he cries out, and Jesus has this incredible encounter with this man who is out of his mind. He is not welcome in society. He is unclean in every way you could possibly imagine. 
And Jesus will speak to the demons who will identify themselves as legion. Now, legion is literally thousands is what it means, thousands. When Jesus says, who are you? Speaking to the demons in his life, this demon says, I am legion, or we are legion, for there are many of us. The next indicator that there are thousands of these demons that have, that have really taken hold of this man's life. Now, when it comes to spiritual things and spiritual uh, uh, involvement of demonic uh, involvement, there are three things. There's, there's spiritual or demonic oppression, depression, and possession, okay? There are three distinctives, oppression, depression, and possession. You, you may have driven into a community before where your spirit was heavy. It felt like using a, a silly cartoon allegory like Eeyore with a cloud that follows him around. Maybe you've driven into a community or you've had an interaction where it was dark and you felt this oppression that was evident. Maybe you've come under attack of demons. It's very real. The Bible says that our battle isn't against flesh and blood but that it's against principalities and those evils in a dark world. And so there's spiritual or demonic depression where we're being attacked. It's having a very real implication on our lives. But then there are moments where there's demonic possession, where we have opened the door, we've created a gateway for Satan and his demons to infiltrate our lives and we become possessed. Don't mistake oppression and depression with possession. This man that we hear about was possessed. He had opened, he had invited this demon legion into his life. And Jesus, when this demon legion says, don't, don't send us back to the gates, let us go into these pigs, the Bible tells us that 2,000 pigs were filled with these demons and then they scurry off of a hillside and tumble into the water and they drown. That's how we know that there are thousands of demons because the Bible says that there were at least 2,000 demons that fill these pigs and end up scurrying off the hillside and into the water. Now listen, if you're into agriculture and if you're into farming and if you're a pig farmer and you see that your livelihood is acting erratic and jumps off a cliff and drowns. And you know that this man, Jesus, the Nazarene, has had this encounter with this demon-possessed man. You begin to be concerned. But here's what happens. They come to Jesus and they see that this man who has been demon-possessed, living amongst the tombstones, is now in his right mind. He's fully clothed and he is normal. They ask Jesus about it. Jesus tells them. And rather than celebrating this man's freedom, they beg Jesus to leave, to flee. They're not interested in this man's freedom. They're more concerned about their dollars, their cents, their pocketbooks. So Jesus obliges. He and his disciples get back into this boat. And this demon-possessed man comes to Jesus and says, I want to come with you. Jesus says, no, 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 no. It's better for you to stay here and to be a living example to the community around you of this transformation. That is the power of our testimony. There are times where it would be just easier, just, let's just be honest, it would be easier just to leave, 
to get a fresh start. And I'm not talking about any one thing. I'm really kind of talking about everything. Maybe it's a new job. Maybe it's a, a new spouse. Maybe it's a new house. Maybe it's a new friend. Maybe it's a new church. Maybe it's a new football team. Maybe, I don't know what the new, but there are times where it just feels like it'd just be easier to go and, and, and just get something new. But there is something substantive about being faithful and where God has you in that season and letting your life be a living example of the power of Christ at work in you. And so Jesus tells this man, no, 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 you're going to stay home and you're going you're gonna to use your life to be a living example of transformation and power. And then as Jesus crosses back from the east side to the west side of the lower part of the Sea of Galilee, he gets out of this boat and he's immediately met by a, a large crowd we don't know how large exactly because there's no number given, but we can understand based on similar texts and, and experiences that this is probably thousands of people that are gathering just waiting for Jesus to show up. And as Jesus steps out of the boat with his disciples, they begin walking. There's this synagogue leader. It's a, it's a pastor who comes to Jesus. His name is Jairus, and Jairus' child is really sick, on the verge of dying, and Jairus pleads with Jesus to come with him. Jairus says, you have the power and the ability to, to breathe life, to speak life into my daughter. And so Jesus agrees to go with Jairus. And as he goes, this is what we read. Look at this, verse 24 of chapter 5 in Mark. Jesus went with him, Jairus, and all the people in that crowd, they were crowded around him, they began to follow him. Verse 25 says, a woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. She'd suffered a great deal from many doctors, and over the years, she had spent everything she had to pay them, but she had gotten no better. In fact, she had gotten worse. I want to talk about this woman for just a moment. The, the mere fact that Scripture seems to omit what this woman is dealing with shouldn't be alarming to us. We have enough historical evidence and cultural evidences to support the idea that this woman's bleeding condition was something feminine. There was something going on with her reproductive organs that led to her bleeding for 12 years. Now, listen, this isn't uncommon. This is very commonplace. Even today where uh, there are things that happen to our bodies, our bodies begin to break down. We have different diseases or things that we have to overcome. But I want us to understand that this is really significant for many reasons. Number one is the length of time. Have you ever been sick or experienced something that just wore you down over time? A relationship that just wore you down. Finances that just wore you down. Physical health that just wears you down. And you get to a breaking point. You get to a breaking point where you just want it to end. I'm going to imagine that after 12 years of this, she's probably there. Scripture says that she went to every doctor she could. In fact, the Bible says that she spent her life savings trying to resolve whatever this condition was, and she didn't get better. In fact, she got worse. You imagine the weight that that must be on her? Oh, there's a second part to this. Now, culturally, I've talked about, even recently, the three types of laws. There's civil laws, moral laws, and then there are religious laws or ceremonial laws. According to ceremonial laws, an individual who had a condition of bleeding or who had been exposed to blood or death was considered unclean. To be unclean, you were not able to worship in the local synagogue. 
you were not free to come in and express your worship or experience worship in the collective of others. This woman hadn't been to church in 12 years. The third thing that happens is no one else can have any interaction with a person who's unclean because just by mere contact with this person, they too will become unclean. Now, in a community, people want to go to church. Church is not just the worship. It's not just the sacrifice. It's not just the education. It's the social hub of the community. There are these little synagogues. There are these smaller churches that are really geographically located specifically in towns and communities where there are 10 God-fearing Jewish men or more, and they have these synagogue leaders that will establish a, a, a precedent and a rhythm to worship, where they can come and bring their sacrifices, where they can celebrate the falls and the, the, excuse me, the feasts and the festivals, where they can, they can come and learn where the, the, the scriptures are read out loud and then they are broken down in a manner that people can understand and apply to their lives. Not so different than what we're doing today, but they're also the social hub, not so different than what we experience today. That the church should be a place where you can come for community and experience life together. But this woman, because she was unclean, was not only not welcome in worship, but if she had had contact with anyone else, they too in kind would become unclean. There would be a system that they would have to go through a process of a ritual cleansing where they would have to do these things before they could then re-engage in community or in worship. So then people would not have wanted her around because they don't want her life to interrupt their life. They don't want to be unclean. They want to go to church. They want to go to the community center. They want to be a part of what's going on. So we've got this woman now. She isn't given a name, but just a condition. This condition is bleeding for 12 years. She's given everything she has to make things better. It doesn't get better. She is a social outcast. She has no part in community. And let's read what happens. Jesus, here again, in verses 24, Jesus went with Jairus and all the people followed, crowding around him. Verse 25, a woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. Verse 26, she had suffered a great deal from many doctors, and over the years, she had spent everything she had to pay them, but she had gotten no better. In fact, she had gotten worse. Now, verse 27 is probably what I would call the paramount of this verse or this text. She had heard about Jesus. So she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe. For she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I will be healed. Immediately the bleeding stopped and she could feel in her body that she had been healed of her terrible condition. But Jesus realized at once that healing power had gone out from him. So he turned around to the crowd and asked, who touched my robe? His disciples said to him, look at the crowd pressing around you. How can you ask who touched me? But Jesus kept on looking around to see who had done it. Then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell to her knees in front of him, Jesus, and told him what she had done. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. Well, so there's a few things I want us to explore so that we have a better understanding. Beginning in verse 27, it says, she had heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe. Does it say that this woman knew Jesus? No. Does it say that this woman had a faith in Jesus? 
Not yet. Does it say that this woman knew that Jesus was going to be able to help her? No. There are several things that unfold real time for her that we now have the the ability to go back and look over. But the, the first thing I really want us to understand is the importance of your story. This woman up until this point had not encountered Jesus. She had not met Jesus. She didn't know Jesus. She hadn't heard Jesus' teachings. She hadn't even seen Jesus. So why is she there? She is there because someone took the time to talk about Jesus. Someone devoted themselves to telling others about Jesus. She had this understanding that this man, Jesus the Nazarene, the one that they call the Messiah and others call a lunatic, had been going around and he had been performing miracles and signs and wonders, including healings, that he taught a message unlike any that had been taught before. Someone had taken the time at some level to talk to her or around her about Jesus and how Jesus had informed their life through their encounter, which changed their life. I want us to not miss this point. This is so paramount to the message this morning, that this woman's encounter with Jesus was a byproduct of somebody else telling her about Jesus and their encounter with him. I say it, and I'll continue to say it. Your story may be the story that God uses to change history for all eternity in someone else's story. But how can their story be impacted if you don't share your story? We need to verbalize Jesus. We need to freely talk about Jesus. We need to express in word and in deed how our lives have been transformed by Jesus. We need to use our testimony as a platform to share and to show Jesus who I was before Jesus, who I am now in Jesus, and the promise of what will be through Jesus. Your story, your story may be the story that changes someone else's history for all eternity in the life of their story. But how can that be if we don't commit to sharing our lives with others. I want you, follower of Jesus, listen to me. If you're not a follower of Jesus, this may be very well the first time you've heard this, but if you are a committed follower of Jesus, I'm gonna ask you a question that I want you to wrestle with in your spirit. When was the last time you shared your story with someone else? When was the last time you shared your story with someone who doesn't know Jesus? When was the last time you verbalized the significance of who Jesus is in your life and the impact that he's made in your life. This woman was there because she had heard somebody else talk about Jesus and she thought to herself, oh, if I could just touch his robe, I might be healed. Well, on the surface, that sounds amazing. Like, what what a tremendous faith. Don't give her more credit than she deserves. She's there because of superstition. Acts 19, 11 and 12. If you remember our study through Acts over the last two years, People wanted Paul, the apostle, to send them his dirty, sweaty headband and apron and cloak. They believed that if they could just touch Paul's clothes, they would be healed. It was a superstition. This woman 
lived in a superstitious community that believed that as a, a, a healer passed by, that it, even if the shadow were to pass them or touch them, they could be healed. Or if they were able to touch this garment, they could be healed. There is nothing that is healing about a, a, a handkerchief or about a garment or about a cloak. And there's no guarantee that, that, that everyone who asks for healing is gonna be healed. I've got a news flash for every one of us. Even if you do experience healing this side of eternity, none of you is gonna make it off this rock alive. Not in your current condition, you're not. There's gonna come a time where your body breaks down enough, where your heart stops beating, it stops pushing blood and oxygen through the rest of your body and your organs shut down and you cease to exist in physical form right here. So even if you are healed, praise God, I believe that healing is, it, it's a blessing. I know many of you in this room, I just made eye contact with like three of you, and I am a living example of the expression and the experience of healing. But I believe with every fiber of my being that that healing wasn't actually about me, it was for me, and that God was gonna use that healing to impact the lives of others. That I can talk about how I was miraculously healed and the only explanation is Jesus. Our healing isn't actually about us. Because though I, I, I think most of you know by now, I suffered a horrible stroke back in 2008, August 19, 2008. I was in the hospital for six days, intensive care unit for a day and a half. The kind of stroke I had, 78% of the people end up dead or incapacitated. And whether you believe it or not, I have zero residual effects. <laughs> And when the doctor came in and we began to discuss what had happened and the, 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 the byproduct of it, the doctor had to say, physically speaking, this is impossible. It's not improbable, it's impossible. Do you know why? Several years after that stroke, I was playing softball. I got hit in the face with a, a line drive, like I busted my eye, what, didn't get knocked out. Never been knocked out, praise God. Split me wide open. I think I've told you the irony in that is when they stitched me up, they gave me baseball stitches on my eye cute. When they went in, they did a CAT scan of my brain to see if I had bleeding in the brain. The radiologist and the, the doctor came in and asked, he said, did you say you had a stroke? And I said, I had told them in advance in my medical history. I said, yeah, I had a stroke in 2008 and it was my lower left cerebellum. And this is what happened. And the radiologist held up my image and said, there is no evidence of that stroke on these images. He said, I can see kind of faintly where it might have happened, but the miracle in that is that if you know anything about the brain tissue, it doesn't, it, once brain tissue is dead, it doesn't grow back. So stop smoking weed because it kills your brain cells. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. Uh, it may alter your mood in the moment and it alters your brain for a lifetime. That's a miracle. So my healing wasn't actually about me, right? It was actually about Jesus and using my life as a plot. Christian, your life is the greatest example that someone else's life may ever see of Jesus. But how will they know if you don't tell them? How will they know if you don't tell them? This woman was there because somebody told her about Jesus. She was there because of superstition. Now she goes up and she touches Jesus' cloak. She brought herself and she thought if I could just touch him, things would be different. And it says immediately the bleeding stopped and she could feel in her body that she had been healed of her terrible condition. 
You know, that's the amazing thing about an encounter with Jesus. You can feel, like real time, the change. It may not be evident to everybody else. I, this woman would have had to go and would have had to uh, show herself to the priest and give an exhibition of how she had been healed before she could be invited back into worship. That was a part of the, the cleansing process, the ceremony. This goes all the way back to Levitical laws. And if you have a skin condition, you go and you show yourself to the priest and then you're welcome back in. I mean, there's, there's a whole thing. But whether or not it was evident on the surface, it was immediately evident inside of her. And that's the beauty about growing as a follower of Jesus is sometimes it may not be evident on the surface at first, but we know. Like my wife and I have this saying, do you know like you know like you know? Then you know. Like you know like you know like you know when you have an, a true authentic encounter with Jesus, there's just, it's just different. This woman recognizes that it's just different in this moment. Jesus realized it once. Now, now listen, I want to ask the question, does, does Jesus not know? Like, is he not knowing what's going on here? That, that's how it would read on the surface. Jesus realized at once that healing power had gone out from him. So he turned around in the crowd and he asked, who touched my robe? His disciples asked, look at the crowd pressing around you. Like, you're more famous than Taylor Swift. How can you ask who touched me, Jesus? But he kept on looking around to see. He kept on looking around to see who had done it. Then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell to her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. Did Jesus not know who touched him? Of course he did. Do you know that Jesus is both sovereign and omniscient? Do you know what omniscient means? Omniscient literally means all-knowing. There's no surprise. Jesus knows everything all the time. He's all-knowing. Of course Jesus knew who touched him. So the question then is really one question, two parts for two people. The question is who touched me? The two parts in the two people is number one, it's for this woman. And number two, it's for the disciples and the rest of the audience. It's for this woman and it's for his disciples in the audience. What do I mean about it's for this woman? You see, this is what Jesus does when he restores humanity, not only does he heal us, but we become known by Jesus and seen by Jesus. I want you to see that. Of course, Jesus knew who touched him. But this was an opportunity for this woman to know Jesus and for Jesus to know this woman. So by doing it very publicly, there's no guesswork involved. Who touched me? This community knew that this woman, I envision the fact that this, the, I, I envision two things. One, this crowd has to be massive, that this woman goes unnoticed. And number two, I imagine that she's hiding underneath the cloak of her clothes. Like she's covering herself. Even today, very traditional uh, Eastern garb is these veils, these long robes and these traditional dresses where women then will cover their heads and they'll allow them to drape. It's, it's, a, it's a form of worship for them. And I just imagine that this woman in her meekness and in her brokenness has got herself covered so that people don't know her as her. She wants to go unseen. You know, I think that that's a tool of the devil. I've talked about this a lot. That the devil can do this separation 
that separation over time will lead to isolation and with enough time, isolation ends in devastation. When we're struggling with something, most of the time we're either too proud to ask for help or we're too embarrassed for anybody to find out. Do you wanna know the hardest thing for me to ever overcome? Two things. One was my addiction to food and I have an addiction to food. But the second was my addiction to pornography. It's not really fun to go to my wife who I love and committed to and say, honey, I love you, but I'm addicted to pornography. Because however intended or not, she personalizes that. She makes it about herself and that she's done something wrong or she's unlovely or she's not attractive or that she's... When in, in all reality, my addiction to pornography had absolutely nothing to do with my wife and everything to do with this fallen, broken world and something that I was introduced to at eight years old. I was addicted to pornography at the age of eight. That is not a hyperbole. The story behind it is one of the most grotesque things you could ever imagine. Do you know how hard it was to overcome that, uh, that addiction? And do you know why? Because I didn't want to tell anybody. I struggled with this as a pastor for years. And as a pastor, you live in constant fear of losing your job if you're not perfect. Now, I, I mean that very, very, very seriously. Now, there's nothing perfect about me. I want you to know, I am not currently struggling with pornography. I don't proactively look for it. It's not a part of my life, but I am still addicted. If I don't have guardrails and safety measures around me, people, my wife has every password to everything I ever have. Dane Livermore, who is one of, one of my accountability partners, who's one of our, el our elder board, he runs all the technology in our church. He can hack into every system I have and find out even if I try to get rid of it. And he would, if he hacked into my computer right now, he'd see a lot of organ ducks, ESPN, and Jesus. I've had to make myself wholly vulnerable and allow people access into my life. But it started with me being willing to just admit that I have a problem. The problem is most of us don't want to do that because we don't want to show vulnerability or weakness or we don't want people to judge us. And so we begin to separate and that separation leads to isolation. And over time, that isolation ends in devastation. What Jesus does here in this moment is he creates a platform for this woman in all of her brokenness to be seen. I want you to know that Jesus sees you in your brokenness right now. Jesus sees you. Jesus knows you, Jesus loves you, and Jesus makes a way for you. In your brokenness right now, Jesus knows you, he sees you, he loves you, and he makes a way for you. Jesus knows you, and he loves you, and he sees you, and Jesus makes a way for you. This story was about this woman being seen. Your story is a story of Jesus transforming your life that needs to be seen. And that's the second part. You imagine the surprise of everyone when this woman pulls back the veil, falls at Jesus' feet, trembling in fear because of everything that's happened to her, and she admits, Jesus, I'm the one who touched you. Do you imagine the shock? Like in a small town, imagine a prostitute that everybody knows is a prostitute that shows up at church and comes to the front. Can you imagine how we would look at that woman? Oh, don't get all super religious on me. Wouldn't it be awkward at first? Like, wait a minute, that, that woman's the prostitute or that's the town drunk. Or that, that's the person that had the affair. That's the person that went bankrupt. That's the person that lost their job. That's the guy that got arrested. 
Most people don't ever want to step foot into the church, not because of them, but because of you and me and fear of what we might say or think about them. But Jesus sees them, knows them, loves them, and makes a way for them. And before we start judging, understand that your sin is no different than their sin. Oh, sure, on the surface, this side of eternity, murder is a lot more egregious than a white lie. But in God's eyes and in God's standards, all sin separates us from God, which makes your sin as detestable as any sin in the world. And yet you're here because Jesus sees you, and he knows you, and he loves you, and he's made a way for you. And our story is going to, not could be, our story will be the catalyst that leads someone else to encounter Jesus if we're faithful to share it. And you know what's amazing is people come into the church now and they look around and they say, oh, that guy goes here? I must be okay. How many of you heard somebody ever say, man, it's been a long time since I stepped foot through the church doors. I'm afraid lightning is going to strike me. Or, man, I, (laughs) all right. Jesus does something miraculous at the end of this. So everybody's staring at this woman now. It's crazy. And Jesus says, your faith has made you well. Like you're healed. Go in peace. That word peace, do you know what it is in the original Hebrew language? Some smart scholar tell me right now, shalom, shalom. Do you know what shalom means? Entire. Do you know the only place we can experience shalom is through the person of Jesus? And do you know what it's referring to? That this woman is whole. What Jesus does in this moment because of her faith is not only heal her body, but he forgives her sin. Do you see that? Jesus heals her body. Your faith has made you well. Go in shalom. He's healed her body and he's forgiven her sin. But how is that possible that this woman, her faith healed her? Because did she know Jesus? Did she have any reason to trust Jesus? Did she have any experience with Jesus? No. She had heard about Jesus from someone or somewhere. And as a byproduct, came hoping that Jesus was going to do something radical in her lives. Through the person of the Holy Spirit, he fills her life with faith. And three things happen. Let me talk about faith in three ways. And then we're going to be done. Three things that we need to know about faith today. Number one, the first is that faith is a gift from God. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, pistis, faith. It is not something you can go shop online at Amazon and get next day delivery. You can't go to the lab and mix some things together to create faith. Friends, if you're lacking that commitment to Christ, if you're lacking that deep devotion to God, like going back to that working definition that we looked at at the beginning, that it is an absolute assurance and devoted trust of God, his word, his will, and his way. It's confidence in Christ, his love, his sovereignty, and his abilities, his provision, and his saving grace. If you're lacking faith in God this morning, don't feel bad. Ask the Spirit to fill you with faith. Don't feel guilty. Ask the Spirit to fill you with faith. God, 
I recognize right now that you are the, the giver of all gifts, including the fruit of the Spirit. And as part of that, your word says that the Holy Spirit gives or the Holy Spirit produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. This morning, Lord, I don't feel it. This morning, I don't sense it. This, this morning, I don't see it. Would you give me the gift of faithfulness in my life to learn to trust you and to surrender to your word, to your will, and to your way? Faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, we walk by faith and not by sight. In order to do that, in order to go where you've never gone, you've got to have somebody who's been there before that can take you, and that's Jesus. Faith, number one, is a gift from God. Number two, faith is a choice for us. Faith is a gift from God, and faith is a choice for us. You have the ability to exercise faith in your life. This woman had heard about Jesus, but she made the choice to pursue him. This morning, no one has the, the, the right to leave here and say that you, you didn't know. You've all heard about Jesus. So now it's your choice to pursue him or not. And I've said this before, I'm gonna keep saying it. Every one of you today, listen to me. Every one of you is going to make a decision for the gospel today. You're either gonna allow Jesus into your life to forgive you of your sins, to purify you, to make you brand new and whole, and to leave here with the assurance of glory and eternity in heaven when Jesus comes back. Or if you die before he returns, the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You can walk out of here with the assurance of the gospel, or you can walk out of here choosing to refuse the gospel. But every one of you is gonna make a choice for the gospel today. So what choice are you gonna make? So the first thing is that faithfulness is a gift from God. Number two is it's a choice for us. And then the third thing, when it comes to this text in particular, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, you know, self-control against such things, there is no law. Faithfulness is an example to others. Faithfulness is an example to others. Even when it doesn't make sense, even when it's difficult, Faithfulness isn't just about you and God. It's an example to others. I am who I am today because many of you and your faithfulness, I've learned so much about faithfulness from how you live your life. I've learned about faithfulness for how you pursue Jesus. I have learned about faithfulness from how you forgive one another. I've learned about faithfulness from how you trust Jesus. I've learned about faithfulness from the ways in which you've let the Lord work in your life and you've been generous to share it with me. I understand that faith is not something I can make, it's something I receive. Faithfulness is a gift from God, it's a choice from us, and an example to others. Don't leave here today missing this moment 